inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. What good is a computer or a smartphone if you can't touch it? That may sound like a fantastic dream for some of us, but for about 5 million people in the United States, that's a serious problem. Welcome to another episode of Radio Cade. I'm your host, Richard Miles, and today my guests are Moet Patel, the CEO of Abilitower, and Parth Shaw, co-founder of Abilitower, a company that provides hand-free access to computers and smartphones for people who don't have it. Welcome to the show, Moet and Patel, and Parth, sorry. We're really happy to be here. Thank you for, for doing this. So I'll sort of let you alternate in terms of the question, but let's start out with kind of a solid description of what the invention is and what it does. I'll start by taking a stab at describing it, and then you all can correct me and fix my errors, I'm sure, in understanding what it does. So apparently there are a lot of people with hand disabilities, many more than I thought, about 5 million, and that makes it either impossible or very difficult for them to use a computer mouse or touch on a touchscreen. And so what you've developed, if I understand it, is a head wearable sensor that allows them to use their head motions to do the sort of things that we would use a mouse for or be able to touch a screen on a smartphone. Did I get that right? Is that an accurate description of what it is? You are absolutely right. So in short, it's a head-controlled mouse instead of hand-controlled mouse. So instead of using your hand on the table to move the mouse around, you just use your head up and down, left and right, and the cursor on the screen would move up and down, left and right, basically. So the universe of people that this would be useful for are not just those, say, that are either amputees or for some reason can't use their hands. Mm -hmm. It's also for people that have conditions, right? That like carpal tunnel or flinder, that just makes it painful or very difficult, right? Yeah, a variety of conditions from carpal tunnel, as you mentioned, and repetitive stress injuries in their wrists and tinnitus to spinal cord injury, to stroke, to paralysis, ALS, muscular dystrophy. It's a long, long list. Walk me through some of the actual products that you have now, either on the market right now or about to come on the market. You have three distinct things that somebody can buy or a company or an individual can buy or purchase. Right. So the first is the head mouse that we already discussed. It's a head wearable sensor that someone can attach to their cap or their headphone and start controlling the mouse cursor. The second is an adaptive switch, which if someone can use their feet or elbows to click, it's a big button for them to be able to click. And the third is a software product. Many of our users have no control of their limbs, no control of their muscles from the neck below. So they can't really use an adaptive switch that I mentioned. So for them, it's a software product that lets them click just using the UI controls. Interesting. Give me an indication. What is on the market now? Like, let's say you have a quadriplegic. Uh What do they do now to solve that problem? So there exists an array of options for the people depending on their condition and there have been changes more or less small changes for past 20 years so the most basic and widespread method actually you would not believe is mouth stylus so it's more or less like handheld stylus 
but you hold it in your mouth and you peck on the touch screen or on the keyboard. A lot of people are super fast with that, kudos to them, but that's not efficient. It starts causing neck pain, your eyes start hurting, a whole array of issues and we can provide a better option. Conceptually, there is eye tracking for people who cannot move even their head for those Options get even limited and eye tracking is one of the methods. Voice dictation and voice controlled computer interaction is another option. However, the technology has been stagnant in the assistive space for past couple of decades. And people haven't really leveraged the advances in core technology. For example, we are using IMU instead of any external tracking hardware, which became quite efficient in the last decade or so. So now is the time we are seeing new options or new technologies being used to solve the same issues that have existed. There are competitive options, but give an improved, more efficient way is what we are offering in the assistive domain. You mentioned on your literature, there are 5 million people in the United States. Do you have any numbers or any data on what that looks like worldwide? The trend remains the same. So 7 billion people, you just multiply that number proportionally. So I think that's more like 100 million people worldwide. If you divide it up in the two categories between those who have very severe physical disabilities, either paralysis, stroke, spinal cord injuries, and then the second group, people who like tendonitis, arthritis, and so on, that second group probably much, much bigger, right? Because I think almost everyone at a certain point at the end of the day, their thumb is sore or their finger is sore from clicking on a mouse or tapping on a screen. Do you think that that second market, how many people just say, hey, this is actually just much more comfortable once I learn how to do it with my head? Or is it really meant for people who have either severe pain or severe physical constraints? We want to help those with severe pain first, definitely. So if you get to a point that I just can't use the mouse at all, then that's what we want to go for first. But you're right. This is for everyone who's, who thinks they need to protect their wrist muscles. It's getting worse and worse for, over the weeks. Then you better late than never is what they say, right? So better move on to a more ergonomic solution now before it gets even worse, before it gets to a point that you have to use the head mouse. I think the size-wise, it's kind of untapped or undiscovered problem because many people are not aware of the implications of carpal tunnel. So a lot of our customers, for example, hadn't revealed their condition to their employer in the fears of losing the employment. A lot of people will just continue trying out solutions without investigating that pain properly because carpal tunnel as a serious issue to be addressed and treated is not that popular of an idea. So there is a huge population who could be benefiting from this, but they are not even aware of their own condition. Let's talk about how you all came up with this idea. I'm assuming that both of you have a, probably a fairly strong computer science background. And I know, Moet, you had done some work on brain-computer interfaces for neurological disorders. And then I also know you were at one point roommates. So how did this arise? You're just sitting up late one night and go, hey, wouldn't it be great if there was a head-wearable mouse? Give me a little sense of how you all came up with the idea. Funny story, actually. So we both have a research background in electronics and computer science. Mine was in AI, Mohit's was in these brain-computer interfaces. And during our graduate studies, 
we came across this problem statement, especially for brain-computer interfaces, a lot of the beta users, trial users are disabled, okay? And that's how we first came across the problem. And in particular, this one particular TED Talk really inspired us. The speaker, Jeff Parody, he has muscular dystrophy and it got progressively worse. So earlier as a kid, he used to paint, he used to go fishing with his dad, he used to go play a lot of sports, very active. And slowly as the disease progressed, uh, he slowly lost the ability to do any of that. He, he couldn't play sports, he saw others do it. Things that he used to do and how that made him feel, that really inspired us. He really hammered down the need for assistive technology, the need for uh, technology that will let people get back to society and we as engineers were like hey you know what we can build something to help this and that's how we got started that's how we got started building the technology we participated in the big idea competition to put our technology out there we got a lot of support from there and going on six months later we get this email from jeff saying that hey uh, i found your product online it's really cool can i be your beta user so he was really happy to know he was the inspiration but yeah that, well that's a great story so he didn't know that he was the inspiration when he called you exactly exactly you know oh. well, well we'll be sure to put that in the show notes a link to that video it makes me wonder how many ted talks have inspired inventions probably a whole subgenre <laughs> of people like you guys listening go hey well, that's actually a kind of a cool interesting problem and then you have the tools intellectually to figure out possible solutions so yeah, i love that story and a quick note so our name ability in Italian actually means to enable. So it perfectly resonates what our mission is. And we realize that just allowing access to computers can give so much communication independence, digital independence to the disabled community that it can have a huge impact on quality of life they have. So this is the first problem that we are solving, but reflects a larger mission to enable humans to do more. What was the second thing you did after you saw the TED video? Did you, the very next day you get out a sketch pad or go into the lab and try to start working on it? Or did you do some more thinking about how exactly would we solve this problem? We actually went over a lot of stuff. Of course, we are engineers. So the solution comes to mind first and you're excited to go after it even if you don't know if it's the right thing to do. So we initially, like initial days were much more around playing out with stuff and exploring more but then we took kind of a more planned approach spoke to a lot of people understood what they were expecting presented a couple of ideas just took reviews on what their thoughts were and it kind of iterative process to come there are a lot of TV shows and articles and books about startup culture. Typically, it's a couple of guys like you or a small team. They hit on an idea. They start a company. In the movies and the books, it's portrayed as like a lot of fun, maybe a little bit of risk and so on. A lot of upside. Everyone becomes rich. Or on the other end, people go to jail, right? Like Elizabeth Holmes. But... Tell me a little bit about your experience. And I know you've just sort of started the company formation and early steps, but what has it been like so far, apart from the technological part of developing technology, 
the actual thinking like, wow, could this be a product? How do we get it to market? What has that been like for you? Unlike the TV shows and Hollywood, it's not as glamorous as it is shown on TV, right? The main feature of the startup experience is uncertainty. Uncertainty with what you're doing is the right thing. Uncertainty whether you get a paycheck the next month. Uncertainty whether this will even work, whether people want this. Uncertainty whether product will be successful technologically. So that's what I think is important for people to understand before they think about jumping into this experience. If you are ready to face that uncertainty, that makes things a whole lot easier to handle in. It's a great answer. What sort of got you through that period of uncertainty before you'd had your first prototype or success? I'm sure probably people, maybe friends and family looked at you and said, what what exactly are you guys doing here? What gets you through that period before you have your first success? For us, it was first of all, Parth and I used to still live as roommates. So we always had time to discuss or go over anything at any point. So that was quite a huge benefit. Yeah, it definitely is a huge benefit to have someone you can rant to, someone you can depend on that, hey, if you're feeling down, he can pick you up or uh, you have to pick them up if they are feeling down. And of course, like Gainesville has been a pretty amazing support system. So we always had other founders talking to us about how they went through the same stuff and also mentors like everyone from uh, Gator Hatchery, of course, Gate Museum, Star GNV. So there is a lot of support out there for the first time founders uh, we can call. And I think that also plays a crucial role. Yes, at least in the UF ecosystem. Yeah, that's great. And there's a lot more now than there used to be, certainly in Gainesville and not like Silicon Valley, where someone just comes and gives you a a big check (laughs) away from that. Both of you are immigrants, in your case, from India, which I think is fascinating. My mother was an immigrant from Mexico, and a lot of the inventors that we interview are first generation or second generation immigrants. Tell me a little bit about what you were like as kids. What were you interested in? And then what were some of your early influences, say, in grade school and high school? Yeah, so I'm from Kolhapur, which is a small city, short drive from where Path is from, Mumbai. And I grew up till my high school in the same town. It was a nice experience. My family is from a medical background. So I saw a lot of social work being done. After that, I went to college in Pitts for engineering, of course, as you can say. So I was definitely into breaking and making stuff. So that kind of reflected in me going more towards technology rather than bio or arts. I think it was definitely a right fit. And then it was a lot of bouncing around. So I went from mechanical engineering to electrical engineering to physics, trying out different stuff and seeing, okay, what kept my interest more than several months. And I think it got me in the right spot at the right time. Yeah, thanks, Mahat, for that. So my story basically is as a kid, I was always the one who was building stuff with the Lego blocks instead of the one who was breaking them. You know, that that used to be my brother. Growing up, I was really fascinated by mechanics games or Lego blocks, building stuff. And that's how I became a builder of technology products, etc. And also what inspired me was my grandpa. So a little bit of history lesson for those out there. There was a freedom struggle in India against the British occupancy. And there was a non-violent movement against the British led by Gandhi. And my grandpa, he was a part of it. He was a non-violent freedom fighter and he got shot multiple times. He got unconscious, he got beaten by the police, but he never picked up a gun. 
and his experience, his strength inspired me to do something on my own growing up. So that has been my story. I did my engineering, came here for further education, and here I am. These are both great stories and kind of leads to my next question too. I was going to ask, often these sort of skills and talents run in families. Are any of your parents or grandparents, were they engineers, scientists, physicians, or even wider, uncles, aunts, brothers, sisters? Tell me a little bit about your families and their backgrounds. My family, yes, my uncles and cousins are from the engineering background. But in my immediate family, both my parents and my both elder sisters, everyone is a doctor. So there wasn't much technical, I would say, inclination. But what I have seen is they are kind of entrepreneurs themselves. So each of them have tried out joining the medical system, but then they started something of their own medical practices, involvement in other organizations, founding social organizations. So I think that somehow subconsciously has inspired me towards this. So for me, my dad is an engineer. My grandpa has always been into social and political work. So growing up, I did have a lot of opportunity to play around building stuff. I used to take electrical components from the toys that my brother broke and try to put them together and, you know, build something. Um, that used to be fun. Amoto, I was just going to comment the rest of your family all being in medicine. What we've found, at least in talking to a lot of different inventors, is a huge amount of invention or creative thinking takes place in two fields we've noticed, or at least two fields, but in medicine and in agriculture. My theory is that one of the reasons is doctors and nurses and farmers are all early adopters of technology because they have to make it work, right? A lot is on the line, whether it's a sick patient or a crop that could fail or things like that. So if someone with an engineering background comes and says, hey, we've got this thing and it does that. They'll go like, great, (laughs) sign me up. Let's try it out. So I think it's kind of neat that at least with this, there is a medical application or medical device application, particularly for those people who absolutely cannot use physically a mouse or what a difference that makes. And you're absolutely right. You caught that point very accurately. Like even in here, when we are talking to rehab specialists, occupational therapists to discover what their patient needs are, they are quite receptive. Like They are super helpful in giving us their opinion. They are the ones who have interacted with our basically customers for past decade or so for their professional lives. So they are super enthusiastic about kind of changing things for better. Definitely. I heard a great story years ago, I think from the president of Arizona State University, and he was commenting that they used to run these business plan competitions there. And they were always sort of disappointing because they're supposed to come up with an idea and then you develop it and market and so on. He said the quality of the ideas were always pretty thin or kind of lame. So they decided, well, we need to start pairing these business students with nursing college and engineering students. And then all of a sudden, the business plan competition took off because it was the engineers and the nurses and doctors that had the actual ideas. And once they married up with or connected with business people, then the quality of the entire competition improved. But he said, typically business students would come up with the idea for a t-shirt shop and they go like, no, (laughs) he didn't elevate it. So I thought that was fascinating, the contribution that problem solvers, I guess, and engineers, of course, problem solvers. So one more question for the two of you. Again, you're relatively early doing this, only a few years. 
but I'm sure you've accumulated some experience. You've had some good days, some bad days, days where things seem to work and when they don't. And you've probably accumulated a little bit of wisdom in terms of what you might not do again and what you might tell somebody you definitely have to do this. So are there two or three nuggets of wisdom that if some engineering colleagues came to you and they said, oh, we want to do what you guys did, what are some of the things that you would tell them to do or to not to do? The first thing we would ask them not to do, especially engineers, is don't get too excited about the solution. Don't come up with a solution looking for a problem. That almost always never work out because we engineers, we, we look at a cool technology and we go, ooh, that would be awesome. Let's let's build a startup around that. But it, that never, almost never works out. What you need is a problem, a problem that the society has, a problem that people are desperate to get solved. And then use your engineering mind to think, oh, how can I solve that problem? That's a much more promising way to start a startup. Definitely go out and talk to as many people from different backgrounds as possible. We, especially coming from engineering background, were not exposed to a lot of business side of things or operational side of things. And I think especially as a founder, you need to be exposed to all these aspects of a company and you need to be thinking about them. And if you haven't done it before, of course, you can't expect to know. And there is only so much you can learn from programmers and stuff. So it's very important that you go out and talk to people, of course, users, customers, for sure. But go out and talk to other founders, especially what we found is if you ask, people are more than willing to help. So definitely do that a lot. Well, both of you are quick learners. There's a lot of good wisdom in just a couple of years. Part something you said reminded me of I was talking to a, somebody in the venture capital space, actually, uh, Randy Scott, who's in Gainesville, and their firm invests in a lot of healthcare stuff. And anyway, he told me something very interesting. I asked him, what is the number one problem you find with inventors as they're trying to get started? He says, well, the problem is they fall in love with their own idea. And I think it's a very similar point, right? It, it, I love the way you put it. it. Think about the problem, not the solution, because the solution might be off. The problem remains. Your solution might not quite get it. So if it doesn't work, you just keep coming back to a better solution. Exactly. I like the way you put that, because that I think would help a lot of people who do fall in love with their idea and they do not want to let it go. And of course, all products are available online on our website. Right. Uh, Abilitaire.com, right? Abilitaire.com. People can just go visit, place an order. We have some very affordable pricing methods as well. But more importantly, we are partnering with a lot of centers for independent living, rehab centers, university, disability resource centers. And an important part for any disability startup is having these community partners absolutely to make sure that your solution is actually accessible to people who need it so we are definitely uh, always open and on the lookout for community partners we are working now with a lot of charitable foundations especially who are looking to enable employment independence etc so if anybody out there hears this and thinks our product could benefit anyone anyway we are always looking out for collaborations. So hopefully this podcast will have the same impact that the TED Talk by Jeff Paradis. <laughs> Someone's going to listen to us. That is a fantastic idea. But absolutely, we'll put that in the show notes so people can get to your website and certainly contact you if they're interested. Parth Moet, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a great conversation and best of luck. Congratulations. I know you've already had some successes already, won some competitions. You guys are certainly on the right track. And hopefully after your IPO, we'll have you back on the show. Thank you very much. We had a wonderful time. I'm here. Thank you very much for your support and interest. Great. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. 
Richard Miles is the podcast host, and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hardwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radiocade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson.